Yo. There's certain things that I can talk to you about that I can't really with my dad. I don't think we should talk about this. Welcome to Let's Talk About Sex with Lynn and Jen. I am Jen, and I'm here with your co-host, Lynn. And today we're going to talk about fairy tales and romance, particularly focusing on the aspect of girls and fairy tales and how that influences their ideas of romance. So I thought we could start today out with talking about just a general definition of romance. And so we just did a quick Google search, and what came up was that romance is defined as a feeling of excitement and mystery associated with love, such as in search of romance. Or it's also a quality of feeling mystery, excitement, and remoteness from everyday life. And so I think that's really interesting in terms of how we think about romance. And maybe we can start off with the history. And I know that, Lynn, you know a lot about courtly love. And so why don't you start us off in talking about that? Well, I don't want to bore our listeners, but I think the subject of romance has been of great interest for over a thousand years, really, to men and to women, but especially to women. Um, the concept of romance really developed, uh, say, in the years 12 to 1400, was really promoted uh, by troubadours who were singing about romance. It's a French word coming out of romance and, and originally out of Latin. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the promoters, the early promoters of uh, romance through the uh, relationship between a lady and a troubadour was a woman known as Eleanor of Aquitaine. And she was the uh, queen of, uh, of France and then the queen of England. She was a very determined lady and reminds me some of Ray in the current Star Wars series that she was out there on her own and she rode to the Crusades and she met with the Pope alone. And uh, my favorite story we were talking about earlier, in her 80s, she actually rode to Spain on a horse and uh, uh, married off one of her granddaughters. On the way back, she was attacked by a group of archers and rode over a 100 miles to a uh, convent where she was saved or taken care of, uh, being uh, pursued by the archers and outriding them. And uh, we're tough today, Jen, but uh, I don't know if we really equal Eleanor in that way. Yeah. Uh, so you get a sense. This is a strong lady. She was re- uh, really developed uh, by her father given what we would use in our language, multiple scripts. Mm-hmm. She was the the regent or the queen slash king of Aquitaine. And that's why she was so desirable, I think, to the partners who chose her. But she was a woman who believed in love. So she developed with her troubadours the concept of love, that a woman would express love and strong feelings for a man. And uh, part of that frame, though, at that time, was that there would be no sexual activity. Mm. It would just be express love, maybe a kiss, a touch of the hand. You know, of course, there were those who broke that. We have Lancelot and Guinevere and that story. But that whole concept of courtly love was a structure uh, that Eleanor and her daughter Marie of Champagne, who was really given credit for developing the concept of romance and courtly love mm-hmm. really worked out so that women would have more power and they would have a voice in romantic relationships. 
Prior to that time, women were married off by male fathers to male partners and their control, their ability to hold property, to control their children's lives or affect their children's lives was very limited. So Eleanor was really a very different kind of woman. What I think is interesting about her, and people maybe, our listeners may be familiar with her through the film The Lion in Winter, where Eleanor is returns for a Christmas with her husband, uh, Henry of uh, England. He's the king of England. He has another female partner at that time. And Eleanor, for the a period of about 10 years of her life, was imprisoned in a tower by Henry. And she... Uh, fought politically to get out of this situation. She worked with her children to achieve power. She did a lot, but I think it points to the fact that uh, women are framed in by certain social conventions. And at that time, women did not have the power that Eleanor had. And men wanted, you know, her land and her power, but they really were not able, you know, to be with her in an equal relationship. But she gives us hope, I think, for a different kind of model when we think of the current Ray and Star Wars trying to follow two or three romantic scripts mm-hmm. and life scripts. We really can think of Eleanor and we can think of all the women before us who really fought for a different kind of script for the women today. Um, so I think this is an interesting introduction to the idea of romance but it also sets up some of the problems right away. There's no sex involved in it. Um, it ends at the time of marriage, courtly love, if marriage is to occur. Uh, the woman has to be faithful to her married husband. So again, the structure really offers women some power, the power of choice, who you love, but at the same time greatly limits women's power. And I hear, too, in that tower, I mean, she was imprisoned in a literal tower, but there's also kind of that metaphor there of, you know, the marriage and the love and how women feel imprisoned somewhat by these constructions and these scripts. Exactly. And, you know, her husband in the movie jokes, well, it's a nice tower, you know, because it's a nice tower or a nice house and women are imprisoned in that structure is it really nice if you don't have the control over it and this brings us to really talking about the fairy tale you're very interested in beauty and the beast and then romance novels which really follow from this yeah i mean i think it's so interesting sorry my voice is being so weird i can't seem to get rid of this cough but anyways yes talking about beauty and the beast was Very interesting to me because it's one of the classic kind of Disney princesses. And I think there's been a lot of attack, particularly from a feminist standpoint, on sort of the Disney princess idea. And I really thought it would be powerful to explore that concept, but breaking down instead of a more black and white kind of world where we either are for fairy tales or against them, Really looking at the complexities, what do they bring? How can we use them in positive ways? As you talked about just a little bit earlier with Rey and Star Wars, I think Star Wars is an example of kind of a fairy tale that we have that's ongoing. And I think it it's an example of how the culture can be reflected in the way a story is told and how characters are developed. And um, just looking at how 
we view those characters and how we identify with them. And I know as a young kid, one of the reasons I identified so much with Belle and you brought up that you also identified with her, I was very much more of the bookworm type and I loved reading and stories and being able to see a woman who fought for her right to that and I remember the scene where the beast shows her the library and it's just, you know, wall to wall books. And to me, that was just so amazing that that love of books would be supported in that way. And there was just so much to it. And I just thought it would be such a great um, story to use, too, because you said in a sense that Eleanor of Aquitaine was that story very much is reflected in Beauty and the Beast, or maybe Beauty and the Beast reflects the story of Eleanor and Henry is more accurate. Yeah. Well, time-wise, we don't know when Beauty and the Beast developed as a fairy tale, but the idea that there's a strong, educated woman who's capable of making a different choice, Mm -hmm. you know, and having an evolved relationship. So that education is power, the strength is power, the curiosity is power. She brings all of that to her relationship with the beast. And one of the things about that relationship that always shocked me is that it starts out with her willingness, her openness, but then again, like Eleanor, she's imprisoned, really, in a house. Right. Um, and the way out is, you know, in a sense, she has to kiss the beast and, you know, change him or inspire change, but it requires really a transformation on her part to be able to do that. It's not easy. It's not easy. And I think what's interesting is I was reading through some of the versions of Beauty and the Beast, and the question that he asks her at the end of every day is, will you marry me? And I think that's very telling. I mean, it's an interesting story because in a way she has a lot of power. You know, he's really a servant to her. That's the word that was used in um, the original that the Disney movie is based off of is, you know, I am your servant, whatever you want, you can have, I will provide for you. And it's an interesting idea because that in a way she's very powerful, Because she's, you know, she is the one in charge of him, but she also doesn't really have power because she's stuck, locked in this castle with him. And so I think that's an interesting construct to have to navigate. And some of that comes from that earlier view of women, the courtly love, the romance. Right. You know, it's the illusion, I think, of women having power. You know, you have the power and control to say yes at that moment to marriage. But most fairy tales stop when you say yes. The right. fairy tale's over. Right. Happily ever after. Yeah. And so that's women's moment of power. And romance novels focus on that period. Right. You know, those moments of power before the actual marriage occurs. And there's kind of this idea that, yeah, once you marry, that you do lose your power. So your power is really in the courtship phase, is in attracting somebody, is in, you know, that when, when somebody is attracted to you, that that's where your power is. And that once you choose to be with them, you, you lose that power in a way. 
Except that's kind of masked by happily ever after. <laughs> I don't think they ever write that in. You and I were joking yeah. about it should be happily ever after, and they worked for 40 <clears throat> years to really develop their relationship. Right, that's exactly. Or, or they broke up two weeks later in a major fight, you know. So the happily ever after really takes away from the actual process that women are engaged in. That's why I, I've almost always felt that, that it was a trap. You know, the romantic structure for women traps them in something that really isn't that developed and that women are going to then have to develop as much as they can within the frame of the tower that they're now living in. So I think thinking about it through a whole process and, you know, I like the character of Ray in Star Wars because it's really about a woman having more than one script, so not being limited in such a way. Yeah, and we'll talk more about this in our next episode, which focuses more on boys and kind of their adventure script. But I think what's powerful about Ray is that she has more of an adventure script, at least right now. I mean, we haven't, we'll get to see the development of her character, which is exciting. But as of now, she doesn't fit into this. You know, she's not waiting on a man. She's not, her goal in life is not trying to find a man or a partner. And I think that that's an example of expanding the script. I mean, there's nothing wrong if she wants to find a partner. I mean, love is a huge part of our lives and it's a beautiful thing. At the same time, if that's set up to be kind of your goal, the thing that's going to save you, I think the other thing that I see is that with a lot of women and girls that I work with, they don't recognize that these scripts are in play. And so a lot of them find themselves waiting or they fall into these patterns. Obviously, you know, as a therapist, I get more of a skewed view because some people are coming in, they're coming in with their different issues. But I do see a lot of patterns that have to do with abuse at times and the sense of waiting and that, you know, my love is going to change them or that, you know, the violence, it happens because they care, because they love me. And I think that can get caught up sometimes when you look at a story like Beauty and the Beast, you can read into it in that way too, right? And stories are really about what we take from them and how we interpret them. And I think it's important to acknowledge that a message can also be taken out of this context. Right. Uh, you know, I think Disney has realized this somewhat because they were coming out with the second film, you know, about Beauty and the Beast. And uh, in this particular remake, Emma Watson, who's a feminist figurehead, yeah. is really coming forward and talking more about the issues of women's power. At least that's what we hope to see in this film. Uh, but I, too, have many patients who are lost in romantic structures, and they're upset because their relationships didn't work out the way these stories really dictate. And you and I have talked about romance novels, and there's yeah. huge reading, uh, maybe more than 40 million are sold each year. Right. Um, the script is a, a version of Beauty and the Beast and different versions. You know, there's five, six different structured versions with, associated with the houses that sell these books. And uh, obviously, there's a huge reading uh, audience available that reads them. You know, and uh, they do focus on women's moment of power, 
mm-hmm. uh, during that structural period prior to really having sexual activity and uh, prior to really saying yes to marriage, as Belle will to the beast in the in the tale. Right. Um, but uh, to have a whole uh, life focused around one or two moments of power is, uh, you know, it's really confusing, I think, for a lot of women. I think it's confusing, and I think it's different if you can see that these stories are fantasies, because in a way, I think then it makes more sense, right? Because in a lot of these romance novels, one thing that's noted is, yes, these women have a lot of power, but the power doesn't necessarily come from their desire. It comes from their being desired. And it's, you know, oh, I'm so attractive in this way, but I'm not trying. And, you know, I somehow get this guy. And it's because I am just so powerfully in charge of his love, essentially. And it's still a power over frame. It's just a different kind of power over frame. And I think that when you don't have a lot of power, it makes sense that you would want to fantasize about having power. But romance novels also create this scenario where you're not necessarily doing a lot in order to get all of this attention. And so it kind of frees a lot of women to grasp that power without feeling guilty or ashamed of it. One of the young patients I work with is named Smoff, and uh, she's a young woman who came to me really about some of her confusion about her sexual fantasies. Yeah. And she had them, which was a really good thing, and she was able somewhat to recognize them, that these are my fantasies, they help me, and uh, then they started to interface, though, with real relationships. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that at first was difficult for her was to have sexual fantasies where she was a more passive partner. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there would be fantasies about being overpowered and dominated, and that was very, very difficult for her because she had been raised with more of the Ray model, and she couldn't understand uh-huh. why she was having those feelings. So I think a lot of young women today really struggle with their internal fantasies as well as the scripted fantasies that are out there in the world. They're not happy with either combo. Yeah. Uh, So Mob really struggled uh, with this problem. And so how did you help her navigate that? Well, we spent a lot of time really talking about both her role, her power, and then also her partner's role and power. And she uh, eventually had an older partner. She came back about two or three times to therapy for short bursts yeah. and had an older partner. She then felt more dominated. It's kind of more the Beauty and the Beast model. Mm. Um, she really had to struggle with that to be more equal with him. But it was a lot of back and forth and talking about it and really trying to make her aware of her uneasiness about her own fantasies and the pull, I think, to fall into the scripted fantasy. You know, here she's got the older partner, finally. He's the teacher at her school or the professor. She's a student. She, of course, is over 18. We don't have any statutory stuff here. Yeah. But, you know, that struggle, too. You know, how does that fit with her own fantasy? She's a powerful woman. How can she be equal? And she was really talking about the ever-after time, you Mm -hmm. know, uh, he might make her, you know, make all the meals and do the dishes, and she didn't want to do these things. So that's the part I think the focus should be on, not so much the kiss, but 
the, right. you know, the 40 years that really follow. The part that follows the happily yeah. ever after. How is it, how is it happily mm-hmm. ever after, right? Yeah. And what that brings up for me too is that one thing I see is I see a lot of really powerful women who maybe are very dominant in their careers, you know, they're career women or maybe they're stay at home mothers, but they do a lot of things. They're in charge of PTA, you know, different very um, powerful positions that women can take in society. And yet when it comes to their relationships, they fall into this very, I don't know if submissive is quite the right word, but more of this power structure that you're talking about, more of the beauty and the beast type structure where they give a lot of their power to their husband or partner. And it, a lot of it affects their sexual life. You know, right. It's about sex and a lot of, of men and women, I think, run into trouble in their sexual relationships when they have a long-term relationship because they cannot really, uh, you know, develop and balance their power with their fantasies. You know, so they're really lost with what to use to create mystery and excitement and fantasy. And the idea, you know, the idea you and I work on, I think, is to help these individuals find their own path to fantasy at that time. Yes. Really construct, instead of taking somebody else's construction, really work together by themselves and with their partners to construct their own sexual pathway and uh, role of fantasy. And that is not easy. I have women who need to, you know, express needing to be dominated and can't really move out of any other sexual frame. Right. And then there's the other group who won't be dominated or won't shift power roles at all. Right. So you've got struggles really around this issue where you have such prescribed roles for women. And I think to expand on that, what I see in working with a lot of these women is that they see the struggle, they feel the struggle, but they don't see that there is this framework that they've been using, this script that they've been using for so much of their life. And so a lot of these women look at themselves and say, what did I do wrong? What am I doing wrong? Why isn't this working? You know, why don't I get my happily ever after? And they blame themselves. And then sometimes they turn that anger and frustration and they blame their partners. And so then you have this very negative kind of, um, feeling that pervades the relationship instead of being able to see that, no, it does take work. It does take being able to understand that maybe you have been following this script. And that's a lot of the work that I do is helping raise awareness about what are these scripts. And we've talked about it before, but I use the word should because a lot of people very quickly can say, oh, well, my husband should, I should, you know, people should. And I don't think people necessarily recognize that these are scripts. Like, where do these ideas come from? They come from our beliefs about how things should go. And they come from these stories Mm -hmm. and our experiences. And Well, also raising, you mentioned your young uh, female patients, but also raising daughters and, uh, you know, through childhood, adolescence, the stories that they read are important. And uh, I've discovered that a lot of girls are tracked into romance novels somewhere during the adolescent years. So it's really about you and I working with our adolescent uh, girl patients to really help them read different types of stories to really push the envelope a bit so that they can construct their own, you know, romance in a, in a way that can matter for them. And that's not easy to do. And I think parents, when they read fairy tales, 
have to be aware of that. You know, and there are a few fairy tales now where the woman is the prince. You know, she's out there and the princess is going after the man. But I think the idea that you would construct your own fairy tale with another person, let's say Beauty and the Beast are in the tower, that they sit down and they have a conversation, really about how they want their sexual life to go, what fantasies they each like, where they might be willing to push the envelope a little bit, Mm -hmm. you know, on a a level and be a little bit different and experimental. You know, all of that needs to be included, but it's certainly not in the fairy tales we're reading our girls today. No, and I mean, when you end at Happily Ever After, that's really the beginning, because I think it's very easy to be kind and to be considerate of a person when you feel very in love with them, when you feel like you're falling in love with them, what we call the romance phase, the honeymoon phase, right? You think they're like the greatest thing that's ever walked this earth. And so you would do anything for them. And so I think where the challenge lies is when you start to fall out of that a little bit is how do you keep your connection going? And I think that's the part of the story that is never told is how do you keep a relationship going? You invest in it. Even when you're mad at somebody, you have to find a way to come back and, you know, talk about what's going on. You have to be able to develop a voice and believe that your voice is important. And I think fairy tales don't talk about any of this part. They lead you up to the part and they sell you this idea that, you know, that kiss or whatever the symbolic, you know, the the marriage, that's what's going to make everything better and fine. I think one of the reasons that romance novels uh, are so popular right now in our culture, um, you know, is demonstrated by another patient I had, Heather, and Heather struggled really with having any romantic or sexual fantasies. And I remember talking with you about her case that yeah. um, she came in and in high school and she was having fainting episodes that had been worked up by medical docs and no medical problems had been found, but these episodes occur during dances, you know, at school, Mm -hmm. and they occur during math class when she was bored Mm -hmm. and fantasizing, you know, about other uh, things. But she was kind of woefully unaware, you know, of sexual or romantic aspects of fantasy, of of her life. And um, so working with her to help her see that these fantasies had romantic and sexual components was really, really helpful, but she was vulnerable. You know, she told me in one particular session that she had found some books that talked about romance, and they were in the grocery store, Mm -hmm. the romantic novels, and they were going to help her. And, uh, you know, she and I had to then talk about the stories that these romantic novels tell. Right. And uh, really help her to grow and to expand and think differently. And... uh, there's still a significant portion of the American culture that wants to keep women really asexual during their adolescent period and not have them thinking about romance and sexuality. So how do we work with parents? How do we work with girls to really help them have fantasies that are not stereotyped and limiting? Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think that's a huge part of the work. And I think it's so interesting because when you step back and look at the full picture, it's like, We expect girls to be, as a society, we expect girls to be asexual in their adolescence. 
And then suddenly they're magically supposed to be able to have these fantastic relationships. And it really doesn't work that way. I mean, relationships, it's a skill set. It's learning how to navigate your own feelings while also being able to respect those of another person, in particular during a time when you don't agree with them. It's really knowing how to navigate the tensions of that. And I think, you know, that's the thing is that fairy tales can be powerful in that I think they're shifting, they're reflecting more social ideals, and we're giving people more room in which to explore different scripts, for example, with Ray. And at the same time, I think that we have to remind ourselves that it doesn't just end at, you know, oh, they found their partner, things are magically better. And we have to be able to, I think, help people see that connection that in order to have those great relationships that we want our daughters and sons to have, you need to be able to start early in helping them learn to build their scripts, recognize the scripts that are being, you know, given to them by society, teaching them to question, encouraging curiosity. And I think these things can sometimes bring up fear. I think they bring up fear for the parents. Right. When you have kids, you know, little girls coming up and saying, Mom, I want to do this. And we've talked about prescribed Halloween costumes for girls. You know, if you want to wear the, the amazing Hulk Halloween costume, it's a, it's a very, really a different story. Right. You know, and you often meet resistance from a parent and they'll bring a kid into therapy and say, look, they're always wearing the boys clothes. Yeah. And this brings us into really talking about little girls who are searching for a, a path. They may be gay. They may be trans. They're questioning their sexuality and what kind of fairy tales are really available for them. You know, I think that, you know, is even more limiting that there's not a lot of fairy tales out there. I am aware of the fact that with romance novels, there's a, a couple of series devoted to uh, gay relationships, but it's it's similar. You know, it stops at the yes, and it stops at the kiss, and it stops, you know, really developing at a certain point in women's lives. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great point to bring up is that, you know, their fairy tales are very much heteronormative. And I think in a way there's some freedom is what I see in working with my GLBT clients. But I also think a lot of them feel lost. So there's a freedom because maybe they don't feel they have to prescribe to these scripts, but they also feel lost because there aren't really other scripts for them to follow. And so I think a lot of the time people will take a script and maybe they'll do the, the complete opposite. And then eventually they kind of find their way through. Is that something that you see? Yes, and I've worked a lot with uh, lesbian couples, really helping them at that same juncture that we talked about. They've been in a relationship a couple of years, and their sexual lives have really closed down, mm-hmm. you know, because their scripts are really lost at this point. They had enough of a script to get that far. But they really have lost uh, ideas. And then to bring up the idea, you're going to have to take it from here and work together as a team, you know, to really co-construct something, bring sex, bring excitement, bring those things into your relationship at this point. Because the, the major script writes them out. You know, there is no sex at this point. You're supposed to then just function as a team to raise the children and go forward and work hard. It's not the script that makes you happy, necessarily. Right. right. And so I think, 
I think that's also why a lot of teens and people, girls in particular, turn to romance novels. Because if we're not having a conversation about different scripts, then that's sort of, well, okay, this is this is an arena where I'm allowed to kind of explore some of these ideas. And I think, again, it goes back to the idea of if you look at a lot of romance novels, there's really just a couple scripts that are playing. And, you know, the, the roles are very similar. Maybe, you know, I think one of the changes that I saw that was positive is more women's romance novels focus on women that are having a career. So it's not like she's just about the man. But the story is still all about the build-up. It's about trying to get the man. It's about trying to win somebody over without... And I think that's the part that is interesting to me, is it's, you're winning someone over without appearing to try and win them over. And I think that's a very confusing <clears throat> role to play, because you have to be passive, but you're also not quite passive. Well, this brings us back to Eleanor. Eleanor, uh, a thousand years ago, was really criticized heavily for being an active woman, hmm. you know, wanting to write her own script. She really wrote the script, you know, for Courtly Love, shared it with her daughter yeah. in many ways. It was a collaboration, of course, with Troubadours. But, uh, you know, she struggled lifelong hmm. to really hold on to her power. And uh, I think it's the same thing, really, for women today. They get to very powerful positions. We've seen this quite recently in our culture. And they're they're going forward to a position of great power and it's interrupted. It's prevented. And that's a real struggle is to how to go forward at that point in time or hold your ground and role model that type of strength, really, to younger women. And sexuality is often an area in women and girls that is targeted. So that's kind of interesting because it's one of the areas where, I mean, we talked about this in our earlier podcast, but it's one of the areas where girls and women are seen to have some power. And so in a way, I think there's also this aspect where they have power, but then they're also control. You know, it's like you can have power, but you need to stay in the house. In terms of, or the, your castle, you know, right. in terms very of... Very limited brain. Jack. Yeah. Very so you're given brain. sort of enough power for some people to feel like, oh, okay, I have power. Maybe I shouldn't complain. But if you step back, you see, okay, I have power, but I've been given it in this very limited context. And it's not really what power could be. Yes. And I think a lot of women are really, they see that. And they want to break free. And even those women who read romance novels, as we talked about, yeah. if there aren't romantic scripts out there, you're going to walk into the grocery store. You're going to see three romance novels, and you're going to think, well, at least they're talking about it. So I'm going to pick them up. I'm going to read them. They'll help me. But you really got to use that as a jumping-off point for your own romantic structure and really look differently. And that's that's not easy to do yet. That's a hard one. How to keep romance going in women's lives is, I think, nearly impossible for many of the women I'm working with of all ages. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it takes a lot of time because it takes understanding yourself, but it also takes understanding the structures that are built around it. It takes being able to process the feelings that come up. You know, there's the guilt, there's the shame, 
There's the feeling of, well, maybe I'm not supposed to have desire because, I mean, that's a whole other topic, but it's related to this. Right, absolutely. But it's related to it because, as we talked about, as you talked about, courtly love wasn't really about sexual desire, it was about the romance, it was about the love that, that, you know, you shared with the troubadour, but it wasn't a sexual thing at all. No, and I think that uh, that's maybe why we put it in this uh, separate podcast. Uh, I think in today's world, it's really about infusing romance, which is mystery and excitement, with the sexual part. And I think they've always been, at least for women, they've been separate. You know, maybe the genders have even separated them off. Um, you know, I think we'll talk more about how that works for men. But uh, I think women struggle with that. How do you get both of these things? If you have the sexual part, can you keep the romance? And this is really, uh, you know, it's a struggle for women, I think, all over. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and you get the broader struggle. Men, I think, often struggle with women about power in relationships. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and I think women feel guilty, you know, even wanting more power and control because if they're lucky enough to be in a reasonable relationship with some power equity, you know, it's hard then to want even more, to then want this excitement in it. Right. You know, but this is something that I hope for, for all women and really try to work in my therapy to help women gain. Yeah. I mean, I think that's so powerful. Being able to talk about power is such an important thing and being able to understand how power plays into our ideas of these constructed scripts is really important. I think along those lines, too, is when I work with a lot of women, I work with a lot of women who are questioning whether or not to stay in a relationship. And in terms of holding on to a belief of, you know, maybe they're very unhappy in a relationship, maybe their partner isn't treating them well, but going back to this idea of beauty and the beast... It's her love that transforms him. And I think a lot of women have this idea that, you know, if I just love them enough, then this person will magically become this partner that I'm looking for. And I think a lot of people get trapped in that. That's where you really need, I think, friends to talk to about friends who observe your romantic relationship. Yeah. And you need to read widely and really look for other models, and then to pay attention to your own feelings. You know, those three things, the friends and, you know, reading widely and then paying attention to your own feelings help you at that point. And then always, I think, therapy is a place where you can talk and really open up about some of these things. I would say relationships are the major thing, really, that people enter therapy to talk oh, about, absolutely. because it's a very difficult point right now. Um, this whole idea of romance, I think, we can continue to talk about, you know, as we begin, it's not only Beauty and the Beast and Eleanor, but it's all of us who are really struggling with the modern world, which has kind of cut romance out of it, has put it in a very proscribed place. And so it's hard to think of it as living, breathing part of our relationships. Yeah, and something that you contribute to. You know, in a way, the romance happens. You know, beauty falls in love with the beast, and the beast falls in love with her instantly. And there's no talk of, you know, well, what 
What do you do? How do you act? What do you think? What do you feel? None of that is really in the story. It's just, oh, they, you know, magically fall in love and then they get married. And that that's really not how it works in the real world. I think one of the great uh, uh, observers of this was Jane Austen and why her books have held on so long is because they offer scripts for romance and her characters Many of the female characters are are different. They're individual. They have more power. Um, and they uh, also navigate, you know, marriages, and they go a little, at least a little bit past the part of the kiss. Though often she stops it there, too. But I think having alternative ideas about it, having different role models for women in the area of romance, taking it a few steps further than that kiss and the marriage yeah. is really, really important. And, uh, you know, that's part of really looking as much as we can at different models and then thinking we can construct our own at this point. Yeah, and I think we get ideas by looking at other ideas. And so you don't have to naturally just adopt an idea, but it's very hard to just come up with an idea on your own. And so being able to talk to people, being able to have conversations, being able to discuss what are the things you like about somebody, what are the things you don't like, what are important qualities, what do you look for. You know, I remember in my life, one of the things where I kept running into issues in relationships was that, I didn't know how to use my voice, and so I would kind of wait very long. Or I had this idea of, there's a sense of waiting a lot of the time. And I think instead, if you realize that you can do something in a relationship, you can bring things up, you can try to figure out what's going on, even if you don't know what's going on, but you don't just let things slide. I think that makes a really big difference. And this takes us, uh, you know, back to Beauty and the Beast, right. uh, you know, where there was that period, long period of waiting. And the women today, I think, can talk to the Beast maybe on the first night when he says, will you marry me? And you can say, well, this is going to be a long conversation. Right. But we have to end our conversation today. This is an interesting topic, uh, Jennifer, and I, I hope we go back to it again. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure we'll revisit all of these things. I think to end is to kind of summarize in what we're saying and reflecting that, you know, this is more of the aspect that deals with girls and women. But next episode, we're going to talk about the more male identified, the boys and men aspect. And I think that'll be interesting. So... Keep listening. And we're going to use some of our Star Wars models there, so they live on. (laughs) Exactly. This episode of Let's Talk About Sex with Lynn and Jen is not intended as a substitute for seeing your own mental health provider. We are here to initiate conversations about sex. Let's keep the conversations going. You can find us on Twitter at TalkingSexPod, or email us at TalkingSexPodcasts at gmail.com. We also want to give special thanks to Nathan Diffie for our podcast cover art and our wonderful editor, Julia W.D. Harrison. Lynn Ponton and I, Jennifer Wong, are the executive producers.